This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. As we go to air today, flash floods and landslides have created devastation in our near north. From Flores Island in eastern Indonesia to East Timor, 130 13 people have died and many are missing as mud and debris makes it difficult for rescue teams to reach people who have survived. East Timor's capital, Dili, has been badly hit. Its main centre and dock area are flooded. The coronavirus had the city in lockdown already and Care Australia says it's the biggest flood there in 50 years and a health crisis. You can donate to their relief effort by calling 1-800-020-046. We'll talk a lot tonight about the loss and damage caused by climate change and the causes of climate change being the burning of fossil fuels. Julianne Richards, who is the head of Canna, says... And the fossil fuel companies have known for decades what they're doing. Yes. And they've made a calculated decision that they think their profits, their short-term profit, is worth more than the climate impacts that we that we face, worth more than, you know, Australia being engulfed by flames, worth more than, you know, a third of the Bangladeshis having the, the land that they currently live on. So we, we need to show them no mercy. Julianne will talk to us about the diverse activities and climate action taken by the Climate Action Network Australia. She'll also talk about President Biden's Climate Summit on April the 22nd, and we hope that our Prime Minister will feel the peer pressure and heat at that meeting to turn our ship around. Later, we'll hear from Professor David Caroli on why the gas-led recovery is unconscionable. And before we start, just please take note that tonight's Four Corners is of great interest to listeners to this show. The ABC TV at 8.30 will have a special on the government's push for a gas-led recovery. I think they'll give the pros and cons, and at the end of this program I'll give you some of the tweets that are being suggested to us by the Climate Media Centre. You know, you can interact with that uh, Four Corners program and be sure that decision makers will be listening. They'll be watching that show and you can tweet all through it to get their attention. But first, Cody McAvoy is here to tell us about the Tour de Carmichael. Tonight we've got a guest from Queensland. His name's Cody McAvoy and he's from the Wangan and Jagalingu people up in the Galilee Basin. They're doing a very terrific, exciting trip soon in May called the Tour to Carmichael, which is very funny, like the Tour de France, but the Carmichael mine is something that we really want people to go and see it and to learn from them. So welcome, Cody. Tell us 
about your country first because listeners in the city won't know why you love it so much and why it's so important to you. What's the land that you you want to protect look like? It's kind of uh, it's it's away from major cities. It's a fair few hours away from any type of major city. Um, the closest town major city would probably be Mackay, uh, but it, it's the area of my ancestors. You know, my father is from there, his father is from there, his father is from there and so on. I have a bit of connection out to all of that area all through there and um, I've got a special connection to springs. I um, I enjoy being around springs and um, the Dungabula springs that are out there uh, are very sacred to us. They've been running for uh, millennia. The, I've had spring experts. They are still unsure how old the springs are. They're, they're different from any other springs in Queensland that, um, in a sense, that they draw their water from the Great Artesian Basin. This is the more reason why we've been trying to protect these springs because there's af- aquifers that go into um, the mine site area where they want, want to build a pit. There's uh, aquifers that pop up through there, so... Um, everything's all connected, you know, through all these um, aquifers and springs that, you know, they're in danger from uh, drying out, essentially, from mining that's starting to happen out there. Yeah. So we feel that, you know, we should um, do our best and do what we can to, um, one, raise awareness about it and, two, uh, you know, try try to stop um, the further destruction of, um, our environment, you know, as, as Australians, it's all our environment as well that, you know, we should play a part in, in trying to protect it. Just so happens to be on my traditional country where I come from. Well, we listeners to this show will remember we've interviewed your father several times, Adrian Baragaba, and also, oh, um, yeah, and he's been very generous with his time. And honestly, he's been through such a, heroic struggle himself but i know behind him are a lot of the other traditional owners and um everyone admires what he's been taking it to the court trying to take it through our archaic system at the same time as over in western australia rio tinto just blew up the Dukan caves with impunity and everyone's going oh shock horror but too late and we realize that the laws aren't protecting aboriginal heritage sacred sites and it's Australia's heritage as you say the great artesian basin is everybody's heritage it's world heritage we meet need to protect it so I'm hoping that Melbourne and Sydney listeners will join you and and support you even though it's a remote area some of them can come up and cycle around us so tell us about this the tour de Carmichael you're going to be leading it I think yep so the event starts on the 3rd of May and it'll go until the 7th of May, uh, which is about a week. The point of the exercises is not really a, a race, as a tour de France is a race. It's more so a, um, probably say a rolling blockade, if you could <laughs> come for lack of a better word. It's something to basically just slow down traffic and slow down uh, Adani's um, work and with his workers being able to freely use that road. Um, every day. Last year, I blockaded their road for five days. I built a sacred fire in the middle of the road, and um, that made it pretty difficult for them for about five days to to get to and from their camp. And um, they were 
they weren't very happy about it, but at the same time, um, there wasn't anything they could do about it. So um, mm. every year I've been coming back and doing different events and doing different things and, you know, just showing my presence on 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 that country and showing them that, you know, we're not going anywhere and I'm going to continue to do these type of events until until someone in the government comes and talks to us, you know, because my family and, you know, five other family groups said no to this mine. It's our inalienable rights as um, Wagner and Jagalingu people to say no, that we don't want um, this destruction to happen on our country. Everyone's more than welcome to come up to this event. It's it's open to everybody. I'll be explaining to people about different sites like uh, the Twin Hills Mountains. There's a story behind them, and there's this, I can I'm going to tell people about the exist uh, significance of the Beliando River that runs through there, and um, hopefully we'll be able to get closer up to Dumabula. But because it's a privately owned um, pastoral lease i have to get in contact with the with the owners and you know it's it's all about trying to sway uh the farmers as well that are out there that um you know what what our purpose is while we're out there and uh you know try and get them on site a little bit more because they they're starting to um jack up a bit against uh, Adani and, you know, from their promises to seal the roads and stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's $100 million for him to fork out. So it's just more money for him to um, have to fork out before he hasn't even had mine yet. So Yeah. um, Well, lots of people will know, you know, in Sydney and Melbourne, they'll have heard about the Stop Adani. There'll be a lot of people with members of that and done lots of work about it. But what I liked, especially when you gave us a talk on um, a webinar the other night and, and people asked, well, is it a family-friendly thing coming up to ride your bike over five days along this road? Learning about the Aboriginal history and all of that culture and the importance of it. But, but you, you said, yes, it is. It's family-friendly. And, and I yep. got the impression that you were being very responsible about it because there might be a bit of aggro around the Adani workers, you know, putting spikes in the road or doing something terrible. Yep. Um, can you just say that to the radio listeners? Yeah, well, uh, it, we have a few salty workers that work at the Adani mine site. Um, I know a guy that, that works out there and he kind of like my informant type of thing that, you know, lets me know what's going on out there. You know, that doesn't concern me with the, um, with the talk of the workers because, um, I have a working relationship with the Queensland police from the Isaac Council area. As a safety precaution, you know, um, we're going to have police escorting us out the front of us. You know, um, I'm going to make sure that's going to happen. So everything is going to be as safe as possible. This, it, it's completely legal to ride a push bike on the road, you know, so there's nothing illegal about um, the things that we're doing. There's just going to be a lot of us doing it mm. at the same mm. time. If if the workers have a problem with with the actions that I do or the actions that the people that are with me do as well at the same time, then that's that's their own problem. They're the representative of Adani, and if they just want to make Adani look bad, then sure, mm. you know. Um, try and do something, you know, because there's going to be cameras watching yeah. you everywhere. Yeah. You know, um, we're not silly. 
you have to be aware though that it it is the outback. There is um there is dangers involved in being in the outback, you know. So it's well, good. I thought I thought you'd really thought of everything. It's a COVID safe thing, and that's what I like. Yep. You know, you're taking people on this tour. I would love to. If I was younger, I would love to do it because. My husband did one last year in the Barker River, Darling Barker, you know, when it was so drought stricken and they, it was called the Corroboree Tour and they met all the elders along the river there and it was such a, like a unique chance to connect and so many city people say, I wish we could connect to how are we going to find out about this land that isn't really sacred to us because we don't know it and and you're inviting people to come and learn that as well as being a big you know rolling blockade and um delaying it's always a delay game with this and we're all you know let's hope it will work but can you just tell us again the details uh how can people they can't bring their camping gear they come to bowen and how do they get from bowen to where you're going to start the tour Yep. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a couple of, there's a couple of options. Um, there's guys that out at the front, uh, frontline action on coal. They have a, a place called Camp Binby, which is over near Bowen. Um, they, they're organizing a lot of different bikes and the food and stuff like that. So, um, there is a place there that people can go to, um, before the event and after the event. The website's just toured with Carmichael. And um, it should redirect you to um, the registration, and um, they can then find out whether you, if you need some sort of an equipment, yeah. um, such as a bike or um, yeah. camping gear or, or stuff like that. We should have support vehicles um, driving behind the the riders with uh, food and water and camping gear, so it'll it'll pile everyone's camping gear and. Um, yeah, essentials in in the support cars behind. I hope you do have some cameras there, like international filmmakers. You just need one who will ca- capture this story. It's going to be a fam- I can almost see it like a film now. So, how many people do you think will be coming? How many do you hope will get them? Yeah, look, I, I'm hoping for at least at least a hundred people would be fantastic. But at, at the end of the day, I. I, I could do it with even just a pocket of people, you yes. know. It's um, it's a funny reaction because I've I've spent months out there living on a property that's five kilometres away from Adani's mine, a camp, the, mm-hmm. the main Labona camp. It's all covered under um, pastoral lease that Adani owns, and he just can't understand how I can just camp on his property without being removed, you know, and it really um throws a spanner in the works of um realization of um who really owns the property then and uh like they removed me last time from pastoral lease and now we've got a human rights case against the two highest ranking police officers in central queensland because they thought they could make their own laws up to remove us from there and essentially they they broke our human rights because it uh, federal law, federal law states that we're allowed to be there to protect, to practice our culture. I'm an Aboriginal person that knows their language and knows their law. You know, mm-hmm. it's, we live in a different time now than, than even when my father was my age or, mm-hmm. you know, um, we live in a different time where I'm able to express my human rights without being hindered mm-hmm. from the government. 
because mm-hmm. the government has implemented human rights um, for tradition for Aboriginal people in Queensland. You know that protects us and our and our human rights mm-hmm. in this state, though. Partly because we've had one of the biggest campaigns in Australian history. Oh, um, the, the whole trying to stop Adani, you know, has oh. been, it's unprecedented, like the amount of support and, um, you know, the, the awareness that people have had over, you know, the last six years has just been so enormous. And, you know, if, if we can't, if we can't beat a mining company with the amount of support that we have, then what chance does small groups in the Northern Territory that still live on country and they still mm. drink that water and they still, you know, eat those foods from that area, how are they supposed to have any sort of, uh, you know, traction yeah. um, to, to, fight a, to fight a mining company, you know, because it everything is all um, stacked against us. Those people yep. riding with you. And also I'd just like to say to listeners, you can support this. If you go to the website, Tour de Carmichael, you can support them from home, phoning up people beforehand or also donating. Just donate some money to this so that Indigenous people who might not be able to afford to get up there can actually attend. So it's like make a little scholarship for someone to get up there or get a bike and, and do this tour of this beautiful country which has to be preserved. So thank you. Really, Cody, that's been very nice talking to you, and I wish you great good fortune on that trip and, and safe safe travelling. To say again the date for the listeners. Yep. Uh, the date is the 3rd of May until the 7th of May. Right. Um, and then there should be there should be some things going on at Camp Bimby afterwards, like a kind of like an after-party type of thing. Yeah. All right. Um Okay, so it's very soon. So listeners, go to the Tour de Carmichael webpage and you can register. We've been talking to Cody McAvoy in Brisbane. Thank you, Cody. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Richards is the Executive Director of the Climate Action Network in Australia. In her earlier work, she developed the idea of climate damages tax to to force fossil fuel companies to pay for climate damage as it plays out in the frontline communities that we talk to so often on this program. I'm hoping she can give us an overview of what the climate action community here is doing. So welcome, Julianne. Tell us... For example, what it's like where you are. What's the weather like? Hi, Vivian. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's stopped raining here, which is something, uh, but it's still pretty overcast. Um, looks like it might rain again, but I think the torrential rain at least is over. <laughs> well, look, 2021 feels like a momentous year to me, and uh, Joe Biden is talking trillions for climate action and I wonder, is this, the climate movement here united around, you know, the speed and scale of change that we need to achieve? I think you're right, Vivian, that 2021 does seem like a momentous year. There's a, it's all to play for this year. Um, absolutely, the climate movement here is aware of that 
and is doing everything we can to drive for more action um, from government and from businesses uh, and from communities as well. So you mentioned the Biden summit that's happening in a few weeks' time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where the Climate Action Network Australia is calling for the government, the federal government, the Morrison government, to come forward with a new plan ahead of that summit. Um, internationally, lots of other governments have come forward with new plans as they were required to do under the Paris Agreement. But our federal government trotted out its already incredibly uh, insufficient climate plan and put that back on the table at the international um, at the you know the international level. And what they need to do is to go back to the drawing board and completely rewrite it. We need to at least halve uh, Australia's emissions by 2030. So, you know, in the, within the next decade, our emissions need to at least halve, if not more. Um, and we need to have a clear plan and a pathway for how we're going to get to zero emissions as soon as we can, uh, not just for the climate, but also for our economy. As long as we stay hooked onto the old way of doing things, the rest of the world is moving on. Um, and we are going to be stuck in the past and, and not only our climate, which is obviously incredibly mm. important, but mm. also our economy and our jobs are going to suffer. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it just sounds too hard to expect that to be true, that the government will take that advice. They seem to be very, um, pig headed about, you know, they're the real recalcitrants in all these big meetings. And when you read the lineup of people, can you imagine, you know, um, Bolsonaro and Xi Jinping and all these very top, you know, powerful people? What sort of meetings is it going to be? Do you think Biden will pressure us to have that sort of ambition you were talking about? Well, the Biden administration is already prov- putting pressure on the Australian government behind the scenes. And, you know, in the media, we've seen um, John Kerry, uh, who is the Biden-Harris special envoy on climate change, publicly make statements uh, putting pressure on Australia to, to come forward with a new plan to increase both our target and our plan of action for how we intend to get there. Um, John Kerry, this, the US special envoy, has said pretty much, to paraphrase, uh, that the, the Morrison government's overemphasis on technology, 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 and a lot of the technologies that they emphasise are linked to fossil fuels, you know, it's just not going to get us there. It's not going to fix climate change. Um, it's just another fig leaf um, in a line of denial. Uh, and what we really need to do is to work out how we're going to stop burning fossil fuels, how we're going to stop relying on them for um, our domestic energy, for our export markets, and how we're going to help the communities that need to do that transition. So it's not, you know, it's not easy. There are a lot of people whose jobs rely, or, or there are some people whose jobs rely on, mm. on coal and oil, and we need to work with those communities to undertake a just transition to ensure that workers have um, new industries that they can go to. There are lots of opportunities. Um, you know, if we shifted to not just 100% renewables, but if we shifted to 200, 300, 700% renewables, uh, we could generate all of our electricity via renewable energy 
we could create whole new markets in Australia. So we could generate a lot of hydrogen, which we could then export to our neighbours. We could generate a new manufacturing or reinvigorate our manufacturing industry in Australia Mm. using hydrogen generated from renewable energy. So there's lots of opportunities, but at the moment our government does not have a plan to get there Um, and it doesn't even have a vision. It's, no. it's got the wrong. It's got the wrong vision. It's got. It's yeah. got a vision stuck in the past rather than a vision looking forward. Yeah. Um, and yes, as you say, uh, jo- the Biden Harris administration are applying pressure. This um, upcoming Biden summit in a couple of weeks, towards the end of of April, is an opportunity for that pressure to be applied. You might remember that back uh, a few months ago, the UK government did not allow Australia uh, a platform yes. on yeah. at their summit because mm-hmm. they said Australia did not have uh, enough of a plan to mm-hmm. deal with climate change, to address climate change. And, you know, I guess there's a danger that that might happen again with the US summit and the Prime Minister seems a little embarrassed by that, so that when the UK government <laughs> did it, so I'm sure he doesn't want to repeat that experience. So there's a lot of pressure on them to come up with something. Yeah. Um, and there's a, and there's a, there's also a lot of pressure and a lot of good ideas out there about, you know, what that something could be. Yeah. As you say, they have a long history of ignoring those good ideas, but that doesn't mean that we have to go forward in the same way that we've, we've, uh, faced in the past. So there's, there's lots of opportunities. It's all well, opportunity. This, this comes back, you know, you're the head of the Climate Action Network. So you may have a, a, an overview, the network, this large number of people, it's like a huge jigsaw puzzle of people. Some are working on very local issues, campaigns to stop, you know, fracking into the artesian basin, that sort of thing, very local. The farmers, you know, they, they really can see local impacts. Others are more, so there's kind of whole protest type group of people and then there's another one who's just advocacy to government. Look, here's a better way to do it. Here's a way of coming out with from COVID without, um, going for more gas. You had many brown bag lunches. I, I really got a good idea of Canada through the COVID forced lockdown. I, I went to all the brown bag lunches and I could see this great gamut of people. But in a way, it's too many people. And a lot of people who are not in the climate movement say to me, well, no one's doing anything. And I think the media gives that impression that no one's doing anything. And Greta Thunberg says, well, you know, emissions aren't going down. No one's doing anything. Well, we know that's not true. But is it a question of refining the message? Is the message not getting through that really a lot of people are doing something and it's unified? What have they got in common, would you say? You know, the uh-huh. protesters and then the proactive ones, the ones who've got a vision for the future jobs and that. Mm. Well, as you pointed out, Vivian, the Climate Action Network Australia uh, is very diverse. We have um, nearly 130 member organisations now, and they range from big environment groups like WWF, Greenpeace, Australian uh, ACF, Australian Conservation Foundation, through to tiny grassroots groups who are working with their local communities on the ground and how their community can make can make an impact. Um, we have development groups like Oxfam, uh, we have a union, we have um, health groups, groups with a health and climate change focus, uh, we have groups, psychologists for climate action. Um, so we have a really diverse set of members. Um, and as you said, 
you know, we come through, we come together in a number of different ways. The brown bag lunches were one example, but in a number of different ways to think about how can we best um, turn this enormous ship around uh, and point it in the right direction and have us heading the right way on climate change. And the thing is, the reason that I think Climate Action Network Australia, having all of those groups talk to each other, convene, strategize together, develop messaging together, be able to pool our resources and work out what the best messaging is, is so important is because it is an enormous ship to turn around. Um, you know, I'm not sure humanity's ever had to do something quite of this scale before that reaches really everywhere. Um, it's definitely not beyond us, but it's going to take us, take us to rise to be the best of ourselves. Mm. And so, you know, as a network, we think a lot about, well, how can we, how can we, how can we turn the ship around? How can we make the best impact? Um, and I think you're right that it's, it's tough for people to understand that there's stuff going on. And a lot of people are kind of focused on their daily lives, you know, their jobs, their children, <laughs> getting on with it. Um, and so at a quick glance, it, it certainly can seem like certainly not enough is happening, absolutely, but there are many, many people um, taking a lot of action. And one of the ways that we're hoping to highlight that this year is that we have a program called Better Futures Australia, which is an out, outreach to really super mainstream Australia, to companies, um, to organisations that wouldn't normally think about climate change. Um and some that, that are thinking about climate change, but aren't your normal suspects. So, yeah. you know, aren't your normal greenies? Um, and have them talk about what they're doing on climate change and how for them taking, they might be taking climate change action for different reasons than maybe you and I would be in. They might be taking it because it's, um, it's actually an, an economic winner for them. Like it's a good business sense to take mm. climate action. Um, and so we, we want to give them a platform to talk about why they're taking climate action and why other people should follow them and why the federal government needs to get on board. Because we know through all the polling that the majority of Australians want climate action. The majority mm. of Australians want our government to take climate action. Um, and, you know, this is, we hope that Better Futures Australia is a program that will help to demonstrate that. Yeah. The people are already taking climate action in their lives. They want the government to do more. And, you know, together we can, we can push on and create better futures. So there's obviously lots of other programs that our members are, that are, are running that I would encourage your yeah. listeners to get on board with. Yeah. Um, but the more we talk about it with our friends, with our neighbours, with our workmates, the more we talk to our politicians about it, the ones who are supposed to represent us in Parliament and our interests, mm -hmm. Uh, the more likely we are to create action. So okay. we need to not be too disheartened uh, and basically just to crack on. Yeah, well, disheartened is not an option, but I, I like anecdotes and stories, you know, from, from people's experience. And when I read up a little bit about you, it sounded like you had a most interesting career before, specialising in this business of loss and damage and maybe a tax. Taxes is one way to go, and it sounds like you're an expert on that. But could you tell me an experience, um, something from your experience? Well, actually, this weekend uh, was the Easter weekend, and I was with my family. I was talking to my niece and I showed her a picture on my phone of me giving a presentation in the UK parliament to UK parliamentarians about the idea that you talked about, the idea of 
loss and damage, which basically is when climate impacts go beyond what it's possible to adapt to and and we have to deal with it in in another way. So I think uh, in particular it's very relevant in our region here in Australia. So our, some of our Pacific neighbours who are looking at rising sea levels and increasing storm surges, increasing ferocity of storms um, might mean that some of you know, in, in some instances or in many instances, people are losing their land that they rely on, the land that they live on. Mm. Um, it could, for some of our Pacific Island neighbours, uh, be very catastrophic uh, and actually lead to potentially their whole country going underwater. How do we deal with these really catastrophic impacts of climate change that are currently barreling um, mm. down towards us? So... In, I guess, I mean, there's a couple of ways to deal with it. And obviously the best way, first way, is to stop polluting, stop making climate change mm. worse. Secondly, we need to help those communities that are facing the worst impact. So much as we need to help the coal and gas communities that need to transition, we need to help the communities that are on the front line of climate impacts themselves. Uh, we see that in Australia, um, you know, with the the floods that we've recently had the, the extreme and devastating fires that we had last year. Um, we need to help the communities that are on the front line of those impacts. And I know that you've interviewed many mm. of them on your show. We need to help our Pacific Island neighbours who are facing the impacts of climate change as well, finding it harder and harder to grow food. I worked on that. As you said, I've, I've had the privilege of having an amazing um, career working on climate change. And I worked on that when I was in the UK. And it took us a long time to, so I spent five years in the UK working on this and, and other other projects and it took us a long time in the UK to get the UK government to acknowledge that loss and damage was a thing, that they needed to help, you know, be good international citizens and help address and that presentation that I showed a picture to my niece of was one very small step along the way doing a presentation to parliamentarians about what loss and damage meant why it was the moral thing to do to take action on it and in the UK's, you know, direct and in Australia's direct interest, um, given that we're in a region where there will be a lot of climate impacts. And now today the UK, as you, you know, are, are going to be the hosts of the big climate summit at the end of this year and they've now got loss and damage. They've independently put loss and damage as one of the key outcomes from that big climate summit at the end of the year, so finance for loss and damage will be used as a measure for how effective this climate summit will be at the end of the year. Yeah. So, for you know, during that five years, I kind of worked with lots of other people on taking yeah. the UK opposition, government, bureaucrats on a journey of why it's a thing, why mm. we need to act on it. And whilst the UK government aren't great on it, <laughs> they're a conservative government, you know, they've at least acknowledged it. It's on their agenda. They'll, they'll be looking for some solid action, uh, outcome yeah. from it. Yes. So I guess, you know, that's an example of, I think sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against a wall, but um, it's probably not a good analogy, but no. you have to keep banging. Um, you yeah. just have to keep going. There's no giving up, Vivian. You just, no. you've got and to power on. It's cumulative and we need to see all the other actors in this, you know, all the other jigsaw pieces, and none of us can see really that. It's such a vast number of groups working, including governments sometimes. But one of the frontline interviews I was most impressed was with Dr. Salim Ulhaq, 
in Bangladesh. And he's he's such a generous man. He really gives his time to everybody. He appears everywhere. But he, he just was quite trenchant. He said, these are climate criminals. We can't, you know, you can spend trillions on in infrastructure like Biden. You can, you know, you can offer reparations, but you have to prosecute the criminals. And I hear mm. all this Beetaloo Basin is going to be opened up, the action plan for that, all these companies that are hovering around wanting to get a piece of that action, which would just put into a cocked hat all of Australia's emission reduction schemes. You know. And so when he said they're climate criminals, what do you think of that, the legal avenue of, of actually – uh-huh. Not just helping the fossil fuel companies, you know, change their business model, move into something else. We have to stop them in their tracks because it's so urgent. 2021 is this time, you know, turning point. This is not a long time we've got to play with now. Yeah, absolutely. And the fossil fuel companies have known for decades what they're doing yes. and they've made a calculated decision that they think their profits, their short term profit is worth more than the climate impacts that we that we face worth more than you know Australia being engulfed by flames uh as you you talked about a Selim from Bangladesh worth more than you know a third of the Bangladeshis having the the land that they currently live on so we we need to show them no mercy um and taking taking them to court is one option that's being increasingly uh prosecuted around the world um, our our neighbours in the Pacific, um, the Pacific Student Association. I've got quite a, slightly the wrong name there, but Association of Pacific Students is um, and the Vanuatu government. I think is currently pushing for the International Court of Justice to. Um, undertake a case and, and, and reflect on whether climate change is a, an infringement of human rights of various people. There's been a big court case in the EU with the European Court of Justice um, looking at climate impacts and, and, and kind of how we take that forward. There have been a number of very successful cases in the US, including um, <clears throat> things you wouldn't think of. So, for instance... Crustacean farmers, I think they were farming lobsters, uh, took a fossil fuel company to court to say, basically, you've heated the oceans. We can't fish where we used to fish. Uh, we've lost millions of dollars um, and we're successful. So there's been a number of these cases are growing. There's also been a couple of cases in Australia around yeah. um, the climate impacts. So these cases are growing um, and the thing about the law is that, you know, precedents get set in one place and then used in, in another. They can be used across countries as well. Um, and so the, you know, the march forward is happening on, on, on the idea of taking mm. the companies who have known for decades what they are doing um, and have acted to undermine science and have acted to undermine democracy uh, and taking them to court and making them uh, pay for the for the climate impacts that they are causing. Yeah. There's one I mean there are other options as as you mentioned earlier I used to work on the idea of a a climate damages tax. Uh, a similar idea here is around the idea of a climate damages compensation fund or levy. Um so the idea being that when we extract fossil fuels 
when we sell fossil fuels, um, that there be a levy or a tax applied to every tonne of that that goes to pay for climate impacts. Um, because we know when we burn coal or when we burn go- gas or when we burn oil, um, it's going to have a climate impact. Uh, and someone is paying for that impact. And right now it's mostly people on the front line, mostly communities who can least afford to, whilst the fossil fuel companies make profits. And we need to turn that equation around. So there's there's a couple of couple of plans in the pipeline to do that, Vivian. Uh, I think we need to approach it from all directions. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Look, we're talking to Julianne Richards, who's the head of CANA, Climate Action Network Australia. Just to finish, Julianne, just talk straight to the listeners who might not have heard about CANA before, who might be in a local climate action or knitting nanas or something, but they haven't really heard about CANA and this overarching thrust. Where's it going? Where are we going? I would encourage all of your listeners, Vivian, to get active on climate. So educate themselves, read more about climate, but importantly, join either a local group, a state group, or a national group. So um, any of if you go to canna.net.au, you'll see all of our members there, which is a great list of climate yeah. groups that you could join. Um, join them. Talk to people about climate change, particularly talk to your politicians about climate change and why you're looking for climate action. Um, don't be, don't, don't be put off. Uh, don't feel that you don't know enough to talk to your politicians because trust me, they don't know much either. And all they really need to hear is that you're concerned and that you value action on climate and will think about it when you next vote. That's all they need to hear. You don't need to be a climate scientist. Um, so do that. Get active. Join a group. One of the ones on the CANA website is a great place to start um, and learn about how people are taking action and how you can join them. Okay. Thank you very much, Julian. Thanks, Vivian. Professor David Caroli. He's, he was speaking at Shepparton at a small festival called Under the Wisteria, and my thanks go to Robert McLean, who recorded the talk and produced it as a podcast in his Climate Conversations. Robert's a member of the Climactic Collective, and I am too, and they have given a lot of support to me and to any of you who, who are really keen on climate action. This uh, Climactic Collective website will be a, a cornucopia for you of interesting podcasts. I think this particular talk by David Caroli also shows you how climate action works. Someone as very eminent as him is very happy, as he says, he can't not do it. He goes wherever he's invited, and he goes there to talk to the people in Shepherd, Shepparton and then to go to a much higher-powered conference in Wangaratta, uh, giving his time, as so many people have given to me over the years.
then switch to a new framing which says let's power the new economy by expanding natural gas. And it's crazy because natural gas and its associated emission, natural gas will, when you burn it, turn into carbon dioxide, so it still releases carbon dioxide. But natural gas, because it leaks, on a 100-year time scale is 25 times more powerful than CO2. But actually, if you're looking at the near term, on a 10-year timeline, methane is 80 times more powerful than CO2. So if there is 2% leakage as you're processing the methane, or if you're using it, using natural gas is much, much worse than releasing CO2. That's Professor David Caroli speaking at the 10th anniversary of the Shepparton based Beneath the Wisteria. David has been a friend of Beneath the Wisteria ever since it started a decade ago. David is the leader of the Earth Systems and Climate Change Hub with the CSIRO. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean, and I'm coming to you from Shepparton in Australia's northern Victoria from the unceded lands of the Yorta Yorta people. When Robert met me, and he, he came up to me, I'm sure, at that thing and talked to me and said, well, you know, exchange emails and stuff like that. So this was back in 2009. And I got introduced by Patrick Makaki, who was the sort of coordinator of this uh, first, um, now what was it called? Uh, the something, uh, what was that, that whole forum called? It was something information or something like well, that. that. Yeah, was festival of uh, that's right. Festival of Ideas. Yeah. That's what it was and called. The, was the overall the over topic was climate change. Mm. And so Patrick McCackie had been the, I guess, chief executive at Gallery Melbourne National Gallery, National Gallery of Victoria. He knew zero about climate change. But the reason that he was asked to coordinate the Festival Ideas was he had lots of connections with the arts, business people, community, things like that. So, And he'd been given some sort of role at the university that they didn't know what he should do. So anyhow, he got dumped into it. He, Someone said the best person to talk to about climate change at the University of Melbourne is David Caroli. So I talked to him over probably two months and helped him pick a whole bunch of speakers and things like that from a whole range of different areas. And I was one of the first speakers right at the very beginning, together with the Vice-Chancellor. The only problem was that he introduced me as the scariest person at the University of Melbourne. That's really impressive. Well, and then I stood up and said, well, I'm not really scary. My grandchildren don't find me scary at all when I read them stories. But I've used that as an introduction because, unfortunately, climate change can be, as you know, a really scary issue. And then you end up with the science communicators saying, oh, you won't make any progress by scaring people. You've actually got to wrap it in cotton wool or not tell the truth or hide the truth. 
Not make up false truths like Donald Trump, but just treat it carefully. Well, the problem is that if, as we, we just have to be a little bit careful about what I say and what, what gets recorded, but I'm going to assume that this is not going to be sent to Alan Jones or to the Prime Minister because the current government has made really significant positive moves on it trying to address climate change, but it's nowhere near enough. And what they've tried to do is to focus things on adaptation because their friends in the fossil fuel industry are not interested in climate change adaptation. They just want to keep selling coal and natural gas. And so for the federal government, it's keep on doing what we've been doing, supporting the fossil fuel industries for as long as possible, and then switch to a new framing which says let's power the new economy by expanding natural gas. And it's crazy because natural gas and its associated emissions, natural gas will, when you burn it, turn into carbon dioxide, so it still releases carbon dioxide. But natural gas, because it leaks, on a 100-year time scale is 25 times more powerful than CO2. But actually, if you're looking at the near term, on a 10-year timeline, methane is 80 times more powerful than CO2. So if there is 2% leakage as you're processing the methane, or if you're using it, using natural gas is much, much worse than releasing CO2. So why would you power the future from something that's worse than carbon dioxide? And you're not Be talking about fracking. You're not talking about I am talking about fracking and other stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's fine. Interrupting is good. Is good. Because I do it as well. So, so look. Yeah. Fracking, what's called unconventional gas sources from extractions from coal seams or coal mines, it's all bad. And the problem is, all I've got to do is accept that actually Australia, and, and I know that you guys have talked about this a lot, Australia is the best place in the world for both solar power and wind power. And it's free. It's actually hard to make money selling sunshine. Because most people can capture it. and most pe Many people have been doing solar panels on their roofs. Yes, they were expensive, but they've dropped in price. There's lots of opportunities. So what I see and why I have kept in contact with Robert, as well as many other communities, is because the solutions for climate change will involve people deciding what they want to do. The last election, the majority of Australians elected again a government that had no interest in addressing climate change. Their policy at the last election was to do as little as possible. They've changed slightly, depending on how you look. Fortunately, they have invested significant amounts of money in what they're calling resilience and addressing extreme events, mainly because the Royal Commission on the Bushfires and Natural Hazards Report, both 2019 and early 2020, was disastrous in terms of fires and extreme events. The government couldn't hide any longer. They needed to do something, so they're developing what's being called a climate resilience service. It's actually a 
climate change information service. But the climate is only mentioned, and you will see this in the next budget, Climate and Resilience Services Australia is being set up at the Bureau of Meteorology to provide updated climate change information. Through the Bureau of Meteorology, on a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year, and for 10 to 100 years in the future, it will be a wonderful information source. In addition, there's a lot more research going on, but none of that is addressing the most important issues, which is Australia's got to go to zero emissions of greenhouse gases, not just in electricity production, but in every sector, agriculture, buildings, transport, everything that we do, Australia can still become an energy power, but it requires a transition to a new economy. So I've said more than enough. I have enjoyed, first of all, knowing Robert for now more than 10 years, coming up to Shepparton, going to other country areas and talking about it, and I enjoy doing this sort of stuff. But let me tell you, it's important to me because if I stop doing what I'm doing because I know that it's hard, how can I in all honesty come to a place like this and say there are solutions and we know how to fix it, but I've given up. I can't do that. It's not, it's not the way that I'm made up. So unfortunately, I'm still going to be doing the same sorts of public communication talks and things like that to small groups or to bigger groups, to powerful groups or to little groups. Uh, just happens I'm meeting the Minister for the Environment tomorrow morning at this conference I'm at, at Wangaratta. I should say I wasn't, it was a choice between Shepparton beneath the wisteria, or the Deputy Prime Minister. Easy choice, absolutely. I am here, and he's talking in Wang. <laughs> Much has happened since Beneath the Wisteria was set up a decade ago in Shepparton. Among them, I've established this podcast, Climate Conversations. And several months ago, I joined forces with the Mark Spencer-founded Climactic Collective, Mark has been wonderful and he has written a mission statement. I recorded that mission statement, so I'll play that now. These are climactic times. We live with the overlapping crisis of climate, biodiversity, inequality and colonialism. The public conversation in Australia on climate is on mute and the Climactic Collective provides a platform to those engaging with the climate conversation. We are a collective of independent creators, groups and social enterprises whose collective structure raises each other up because we can only face these challenges together. Responsibility for climate conversations rests with me, but you could help with the questions. And if something is not being asked of whom it should be asked, then please make a suggestion and contact me on number 7 at icloud.com To access earlier episodes of Climate Conversations, go to the Climactic Collective website. Click on the Climate Conversations artwork and that will allow you to look at all the past episodes. In all the chaos and rhetoric surrounding the climate conversation, I urge you to put your faith in genuine climate science. 
and remember that action is the best antidote to despair. I'd like to thank our guests tonight. We had Cody McAvoy from the Wangan and Jagalingu people up in the Galilee Basin. They're inviting us to the Tour de Carmichael to stop Adani's mega coal mine. And if you want to join, or even more importantly, if you're in the city, if you want to support someone else to join, like an indigenous person who would like to join this tour, you can send a donation to the Tour de Carmichael. Thanks also to Julie Ann Richards. She's the CEO of CANA. That's the Climate Action Network of Australia. And I think you could see her idea that we need to keep putting pressure on the government not to give them any, not give any mercy to the fossil fuel companies. And the way to do that is collectively join up with a climate action group and you can find many of them on the CANA website. C-A-N-A. Thank you also to Professor David Caroli, whose talk at Shepparton was provided to us by Robert McLean. His climate conversations are all available at the Climactic Collective. And now for action tonight. If you're going to watch the Four Corners show, you can start by tweeting about it beforehand. It's about the pros and cons of our gas-led recovery. The Climate Media Centre sent me some suggested tweets, so here are some of the best ones. Number one, you could tweet during the show or even before the show, saying, The Federal Government is spending millions of dollars on consultants to advise on how to subsidise the multi-billion dollar gas industry, despite it only employing 0.2% of the Australian workforce. Hashtag Four Corners, hashtag Ospol. Number two. Multinational gas companies have been ripping us off for years, paying little or no tax, exporting most of the gas and leaving us with the environmental damage and the high cost of domestic gas. Hashtag Four Corners. Hashtag Ospol. And the third one, which I like the best, Australia must not sacrifice its farmland and precious underground water to the greedy gas industry. Cheap, clean energy could power a manufacturing boom. Invest our money in the future we need. Hashtag Four Corners. Hashtag Don't Frack the Outback. This is our last show for the moment. I need to take a break and we'll be back mid-May. I am launching a climate action show collective so we can be more of a platform for the massive number of groups out there that want to be heard. Climate action has become so enormous as a huge jigsaw puzzle of groups but we need some unity and this program could be really that hub for people all to be heard. If you would like to be a member of the Climate Action Show Collective please contact me at vivianlangford6 at gmail.com Lastly, don't forget the flood victims in Indonesia and East Timor. They need our aid now. Good night and good luck. <laughs>